It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. This is John Elledge, the host of Pod or yeah, Podcast Skylines. That's how f***ing podcasts work. Well, no, you I talk really in your that. normal voice, and then you eventually go into your normal voice. But it always starts out. It's like the way I start out trying to be normal. It's like phone. Answering, <laughs> and then right? I just yeah, exactly. And it's like hello, welcome. This is Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. And then you're all of a sudden like going like that. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is. Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skylines, a City Metric podcast. Apparently I'm doing a weird voice right now, because apparently at the start of these things, I do a weird voice. It's something I've just learned about myself, so that's something that I'm excited and in no way, in no way better about. Anyway, it's January, it's cold, it's miserable, it's the first day of my diet, so today we are going to have a fairly spurious conversation about food. There is actually some serious hashtag content later in the podcast when I'll be speaking to Paul Swinney of the Centre for Cities about uh, a fairly meaty question in the world of urban economics. You know, does size matter and the agglomeration theory and so on? That's nice. going to be that's going to be quite quite taxing. So, in the name of a balanced diet, the rest of the conversation is going to be utterly spurious nonsense with Miss Sarah Manavis and Mr. Nicky Wolf. Hello, guys. How are you doing? Hi. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Everyone being very very disciplined and. and and sensible and in normal. the podcast today. We did talk about recording this this episode in, in London's premiere branch of Taco Bell, which I believe is in Hammersmith, but that sounded like quite a long way to go, so we thought we'd just do it here instead. So let's... Yeah, we, I quite strongly advocated for a Taco Bell visit, because I think that's a lot more interesting than us sitting in this weird, cold room. And also, Taco Bell is like one of those things that's like a proper American sorry, Taco institution. Taco Bell, is it? Taco? Are we going with Taco? Is well, I don't American? say taco or is that the, pasta. This taco is, what, is how we say it. Yeah, we make it sound fancy. Is this, is this how Americans work? But Taco Bell is like a proper institution. I can't believe there wasn't one in London sooner. And it is good. And you can get, a ta- not to do free promotion for Taco Bell, but you can get like three tacos for like £4.50. I have to admit this. I've been lived in America for six years. I have never been to a Taco Bell. Yeah, which I think is what actually triggered this conversation is yeah. us talking about that because we were talking about the greg sausage roll the vegan sausage roll but i mean this kind of brings this whole thing together it's like it is possible that meat can be too cheap like you say you say free tacos i'm sticking to that you say free tacos for four pounds fifty and i don't think that's a great deal i think what horrors have you wrought i mean i've never been there but i've seen people who've been there quite soon after they've been there and i'm not sure meat is entirely the correct word yeah do at Taco Bell. it's like matter it's it's meat but it's with air quotes around it yeah exactly and it's not like i'm going there because i'm like oh wow i want to be healthy and i don't want to like 
shit myself later. I'm going there for the opposite purpose. I want to like gorge and feel bad about it later. Can we compare and contrast Taco Bell with the other American fast food institution that I've never been to, which is Chipotle, which I always used to call Chipotle. Apparently, is not that's not how you pronounce it. <laughs> to be fair, it. I think a lot of people in the U.S. also call it Chipotle. <laughs> Here's the difference, and you can get both of them in London now, which is very this is a very London centric podcast, isn't it? But the thing is, is like screw you, <laughs> like. <laughs> Chipotle is like actually good. And I know like we had this conversation, like I would say it's good food. But as I said this, you were like, didn't they have like a big health crisis? And it's like, yeah, they had a little bit of listeria. Who hasn't? But yeah, no, essentially like it's like, it it might have been E. coli. It was one of the ones where you're like, listeria sounds like flowers. Listeria is kind of like a nice sounding really bad thing. There was a very famous Ohio ice cream chain called Jenny's and they had listeria in their ice cream. But that's kind of like on on purpose or well, no. <laughs> no, they had to shut down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Try our new scoop. Chipotle is like actually good. It costs you like nine dollars, but it's full of a bunch of like nice bullshit. Whereas Taco Bell is literally like the cheese as yellow as like a yellow crayon and or crayon, and the meat is like in little like. Well, the pastels. crown would also have worked, I think. Yeah. And it's just everything is like neon colored and artificial, and it, but it tastes good. And you just slather it in f- sauce, and then it tastes really nice, and then you're full in a matter of five minutes, because you just wolf them all down. Okay, this is a very fascinating advert, but let's try and like, keep <laughs> it vaguely relevant to the topic at hand. Which, which is, is you know, what? Is there sort of a regional difference with these things? Like, are there, like, the US is a huge country, obviously. Are there some chains that are, like, more focused on some areas than others? Or is it just, like, these these things have their tentacles everywhere? People from California will obsessively talk about In-N-Out Burger. Yeah, that's true. Like, I think there is, like, a regional I've never thing. even heard of that. Well, yeah, exactly. It's pretty good. But there's better chains, I think, in the Midwest. Burger and Shake is my favorite. Burger and Shake is amazing. It is Burger Shake, right? Steak and Shake? Steak and Shake. I always do that. I do think the Midwest has a demand for that fast food stuff because it's not as metropolitan as New York. Like, you're not going to find people that are like, oh, I want to go out to, like, a trendy restaurant. You have, like, shittier, cheaper, but shitty in a good way, cheaper fast food chains because people actually use them. And I think that's why, this is my entirely unscientific reason for that's why there are better food chains in the Midwest because there's more of a demand for shitty fast food. Okay, so where does Greg's fit into this, do we think? Would you argue that Greg's is part of the British version of the same phenomenon? Yeah. I think, like, the demand for something that's, like, very synthetic but tastes very good and costs, like, nothing like, has to be from the same thing. I don't actually know the history of Greg's very much. I know there was a podcast about Greg's. I actually listened to, I think, with Barbara. Yeah, yeah, we got Barbara on for, like... I think it was our, our, our first birthday special. We just invited Barbara back to talk about Greg's. Yeah. Because what could be more more festive than that? But, no, there is there is actually a book, which is The History of Greg's, which I think is called Bread. It's, like... If you talk to Barbara about this, she'll know. But, yeah, I mean, her argument was basically that it's people do sometimes want something that is hot and cheap but kind of comforting and something warm and beige is what you're really looking for. I think that speaks of the tyranny of low expectations in this country, well, in this food culture. I don't mind Greg's. I quite, Greg's is quite useful. It plays a role, but I nonetheless feel it. The fetishization of it has got a bit weird, I think. There's an identity component to this i think right like if you kind of are proud of greg's as like the kind of marker of northern england and, and i think in and out burger is the same for people from california the only other one i can think of that's like that is there's a chain called jollibee in the philippines which people are obsessed with like it's the one of those things where as soon as they go get home it's the first thing you do the kind of a ritual thing in that same way as like people who've moved overseas will go home and like first thing they do will have a great like a greg's 
pasty. Not to call you too, like, metropolitan elite, but, like, <laughs> I really do think there's a lot less of identity going on there for people that are actually just working class. Like, I wouldn't say I was, like, really working class, but I, I, I definitely wasn't middle class. Like, it was single parents' income in our house, like, verging on benefits, but not quite. So, like, it was fine. But, like, we went to Steak and Shake because we were like, Steak and Shake is amazing. We went to McDonald's and like cheered to go to McDonald's because it was like, we thought it was really Mm. good food. Because I had the weird Greek thing, like I got exposed to some other things. So maybe I wasn't as much like that, but I don't think people were like, I identify in the Midwest. I don't think people were like steak and shake. Yes, if I go to other places, steak and shake is the thing because a lot of people don't go to other places that don't have a steak and shake. Whereas I think like in California, you do have a lot more major cities. You do have a lot more exposure to like other cultures and things like that. So like you have more of an identity with certain fast food chains there because you have greater worldview and you can understand that like certain things only exist in your location rather than them just being like this is the norm we go to jimmy john's we go to i mean steak and shake is a great example again like i think that's why these places are there some types of food that lend themselves to fast food but other like i can think of loads of chain italian fast food loads of chain mexican fast food do you mean olive garden and taco bell (laughs) yeah but i mean aside from the generic Chinese restaurant menu that you kind of find everywhere in the yeah. world. There isn't like a single chain of, I guess, Panda Express, but like that's not, more, really. I think of that, not really in the same way, right? And I think like also Greg's is, this country is weird as well. Like this country has such weird class issues that I think the US obviously has in a some way, but it's not really in the same way. It's so obvious, even from the way someone speaks that you do in the UK. So I think like Greg's does have more of an identity here than like you can relate to other chains in the US because the class divide around food is just not as strikingly apparent, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think everything in this accursed country comes back to class in some way or another. And that's just that's just who we are, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's kind of in, in the whole thing with the Greg's debate where like there are a lot of people going, oh, God, you guys are just like posh people pretending to like Greg's is like to show you right on or something. And there is an element of that. But I think it's also like people kind of stop doing it ironically. Like, I think it does genuinely become something that people love but they may have got into it for for reasons unrelated to their own class background if you see what they mean well and also like and i think it's because like i do think there is also an element of a lot of people who i guess you can say are like quote-unquote working class they do love greg's and it's not like there's this like weird meta love for it because you know it's it's like you just that's what you had after nights out that's what your parents got you on a sunday morning like that kind of thing like all of my friends at uni my like at the start who were all like from sort of like working class parts of Glasgow or were from working class parts of Manchester. Like they, it wasn't, it was just like, oh, you haven't had a Greg's? We need to introduce you to Greg's. It's amazing. It's so cheap. But yeah, but then there is this sort of like journalists on Twitter being like, hey, everyone, the Greg's sausage roll. Don't we all love that from our youth? I think you should probably stop having a go at your colleagues. <laughs> to be honest. I don't think I'm having a go at anyone. I think Anoush worked very hard on that piece about the vegan <laughs> sausage roll. Anusha and you have to, after this podcast is finished, you have to sit down next to her again <laughs> and look her in the eye. No, I'm not subtext discussing Anoush. I used to go to Greg quite a lot, but that was because you could literally get a baguette and a coffee for three quid if you did it first thing in the morning. And that was just like a really cost-effective way of getting your lunch. Yeah, exactly. When I was so a like, student, I discovered Greg's and I discovered what a steak bake was. I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to eat this for the rest of my life. Okay, you guys should probably know the drill by now. This is uh, the latest segment of our our regular feature, Ask the Experts of the Centre for Cities. 
This week, I am here with uh, Director of Policy, Paul Swinney. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hello. Not bad. Thanks. Yourself? I'm pretty good. You've just, uh, you just had a little one. I have, yes. So I've had uh, lots of, of sleepless nights recently, which has been great because it's meant that uh, I've got even more hours in the day now to think about cities. So, you know, my productivity is uh, a new idea is going to go through the roof. And presumably, all those sleepless nights, you can just sort of read like local government finance reports and then send you straight off again. Though. Well, yeah. I actually need to try and sort of stay awake through this time. So the local government finance, I've had to sort of leave during the day. And uh, you know, leave, leave some more interesting things for, for the evening to keep me awake. Okay, well, talking of more interesting things, we are going to talk about agglomeration theory. You don't get much more interesting than that. My favourite topic. Yeah. So the question this week is uh, something that's bothered people down the ages, which is, does size matter in an urban context? So this is a great debate, isn't it? And... It's interesting that I think when you look in the, the UK context and you, you look at the size of city and you correlate that against economic performance, you do not see that big cities do well. Now, there's a big aha moment here that I think some people in our field have said, well, well agglomeration doesn't really exist, doesn't it? It doesn't work for UK cities and it doesn't play out, so agglomeration is a load of rubbish. Well, we've got to say, well, hang on a minute, just, just, just calm down for, for one second. Now, let's take an analogy. You know, Let's think about a basketball player. Basketball players uh, need to be tall, you know, or a majority of them need to be, be tall. But just because you are tall on yourself doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a good basketball player. So let's say that you're six foot five, but you can't catch. You're not going to be very good at basketball. That's not ideal for a basketball player, is it? That's not, yeah. It's, it's not ideal. And the same sort of thing applies for cities too. That Yes, you can be very large, but size isn't the only thing that matters. You know, if you've got a, a large number of people living in your city, but very few of them have, you know, degrees or other high-level qualifications, you're going to struggle. And I think that's the big challenge we see within our majority of our big cities, is that skills aren't fantastic, transport isn't as good as what it could be, the planning system probably hasn't worked in the way that we want it to. So yes, they are big, but there are other fundamental challenges that mean that they don't perform as well as they should be doing, and they're definitely punched below their weight. Let's take a step back, because we've kind of launched into this conversation without explaining what agglomeration theory actually is. And there is at least a chance there's someone listening to this podcast who's never, who's never come across this before. Really? Basically, if you kind of look at it in, in most countries, the big cities will be the most productive cities, right? And the bigger a city gets, the more productive it is. And the UK is weird, or England rather, particularly is weird, in that that doesn't seem to hold. And normally you would expect the second and third cities to be most productive after the biggest. So you would expect the league table to go roughly like London, then Birmingham and Manchester, then like Glasgow and Leeds. And yeah. and that doesn't hold at all. Like London is obviously the most productive. But after that, the most productive British cities tend to be like relatively small places like, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or Milton Keynes. And Slough. Yeah, Slough is... I mean, whether Slough counts as a city is a whole different uh, different debate, which we're not going to get into right now. But the point is, like this, this kind of what seems like a, a fairly universal law doesn't hold in Britain. So, firstly, where it does hold, why? What's the logic? So the logic is that by concentrating loads of economic activity in one place, that's lots of people, lots of businesses, you get this multiplying impact on on in terms of sort of the output that they create. So by concentrating all this activity together, you know, people are sharing ideas, it's easy to link companies with suppliers, it's easy to link people with jobs, you know, you've got many different jobs and many different skills, and you've got loads of different people who can then say, actually, do you know what, there's a job here exactly for me, 
of all these sort of millions of jobs at, uh, in a place like London, for example. That means you get all these efficiencies. And because of that, then productivity increases and you get more out of a big city than what you put in, in theory. Now, like you say, that definitely holds in America. It holds in, in Germany. We see some charts on that, but it does not apply in the UK. And that's why we then get the aha moment from, from certain parts of the community who say, well, well, agglomeration just doesn't, it's just not relevant for the UK. Now, why is that, you ask? Well, there are, I think there are a number of reasons for that. And again, I think it's that size is important, but it's not the only thing. You know, there are other issues around, say, well, what's the skills of your workforce? You know, what does your transport system look like? How has planning helped economic development in, in recent decades? And those answers to those things, are, they all look pretty good when you look at London, and agglomeration definitely plays out within London, but they're not so great when you look at places like Manchester, like Sheffield, like uh, Liverpool, where actually their performance is way below the national average, when really, according to agglomeration theory, it should be above the national average. So size is important, but it definitely isn't everything. You've got to have other components in place too. Okay, so if size is not everything, is it a mistake to be focusing our efforts on, on bigger cities? Because this is the argument we hear from our, our, our very good friends at the Centre for Towns, who like think that you know it's too much policy making has been focused on the big core cities. And actually, if you look at where the productivity gains have come in recent years, they are often in the smaller places, which have been neglected by policy. Do they have a point? That we see that pattern, it should be of huge concern to policymakers because agglomeration is a real thing. Other countries do benefit from it. And that our biggest cities are punching well below their weight is a huge problem. You know, they should be above the national average on a range of indicators. They should be more productive than other parts of the uh, of the country, um, with implications for not only the jobs available and wages available in the in the cities themselves, but also the contribution that those cities make to the national economy. And the UK economy is smaller and is worse off as a result of our biggest cities punching below their weight. So it's a huge problem that we need to try and address. Now, obviously, you know, smaller places, smaller cities doing well, like Slough, like Cambridge, etc., is a great thing. You know, and it shows that size isn't the only issue. But we should be very concerned that agglomeration doesn't seem to play out on this measure in the way that it should. Also, is there an argument that you can policy improvements could have the greatest impact if applied to larger places, like the most basic level, if we could fix the economies of, you know, the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, that's a fair number of people who will benefit, right? There's definitely a scale issue in this too, yeah. I mean, if you get policy right in in these big places, it is going to affect the, the largest number of, of people. And I think that tied with the theory that, that says they should be performing better gives you two compelling arguments as to why we should be trying to, to fix these places. Or or continue to help improve them, because I think there is a little bit of a, of a turnaround in them. But yes, you know, those two issues are why we should be thinking about these places. Final question on this. Why do you think that so many of our larger conurbations are not performing economically in the way that the theory suggests they should? And you know, why, is, why is Manchester not like, you know, Hamburg? Well, if we take the, the basketball player analogy again, I think a lot of our big cities are like um, basketball players that have had long-term injuries. So, you know, let's say they were their, their prime in, say, 1910, 1920. And then all of a sudden, you know, globalisation came along and sort of competition from the Far East and things like that. 
and Middle East and it handicapped them. You know, they've got a broken leg, let's say, because of all these these changes. I mean, they've been on the road to recovery, I think, probably since then. Certainly from Manchester's perspective from the 1930s was hit hard by competition from India and textiles. Uh, Birmingham was hit hard in the 70s and 80s through deindustrialization. But if we look at sort of how they've performed over the last 20 or 30 years, we do see that agglomeration is playing out within them. The problem is that they've got this massive industrial hangover or a big industry that's really sort of holding back their performance and that they're trying to sort of adjust their economies to the 21st century. So if we look at the the centres of of Manchester and the centre of Birmingham, their city centres have done pretty well in recent years. And that fits very much with agglomeration theory. You know that we get um, high-skilled service-based companies want to be based within city centres where not only can they get access to all these large numbers of, of, of skilled workers, but also can access this sort of network of other businesses too. You know, this concentration of activity in one place that pushes up their productivity. So we do see agglomeration happening. It's just that you know the turnaround of their city centres and the adjustment to the 21st century for the for these city economies hasn't occurred probably at the pace that we would have liked, or certainly not at the pace that London has adjusted, so that we don't see the aggregate figures that these cities are doing as well as uh, is what they should be. Now, I think if we were to have this conversation again in 20 years time would see that these cities will be back at the top of the rankings but you know these things take a long time to, to, to turn around and I think we'll not be having this argument about agglomeration that's in two decades. Okay well Skylines has gone nearly three years at this point whether we'll last another 20 is uh, an interesting <laughs> question but we will be back in two weeks. I'm going to pose this question now and we're going to answer in two weeks. Is transport a factor here? Because if you look at London there, are, there is quite a big population that will find it relatively easy to get to a job in the city or the West End or Docklands, wherever it may be. If you look at the West Midlands, the same doesn't really apply. So, come back in two weeks to find out the answer. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. OK, 
Okay, and we're back in the room having an absolutely spurious conversation about food. I f- have a question for you guys. Where do you think the best food in the world can be found these days? Which city would you go to to eat? That's a great question. And I don't mean that with any air of snarkiness. I do this for a living, you know. That was a really good question. Because, okay, my my thinking behind this is like Paris has always sort of tried to position itself as a great food city. And it's kind of not. It's like, it's really not great. There's kind of two different kinds of answer to that question, right? There's like cities like New York, London or Paris where there's loads and loads of different types of food. I don't think that's true of Paris. So that's kind of my argument. I think, yeah. Oh, right, but, yeah. But, but like, but, I know what you mean. Like, yeah, you're creating like the international cities. Yeah. yeah. With like diversity. Of yeah. Food. And then you've got places like Florence where you just go there and it's the best one particular kind of food in the world. Oh, God, let's have a steak in Florence. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you I, guys I really think Florence. that? Not to be really pretentious about that, but like, I went to Rome in Florence this summer and I actually found I ate much better food in Rome than I did in Florence. I think you might have been doing it wrong. Maybe I was. But I'm like very food orientated. All of my holidays are based on it. But like, this is not a, the idea that Florence and Tuscany have amazing food is not something that, that we've just made up no no I don't like think I, didn't, I, I don't mean like Florence was I mean a Rome, Rome also has amazing food yeah yeah but it might just might just mean a lot but I know what you mean yeah it's like do you go to a place like somewhere in Thailand where it's like everything is like fresh and it's like one type of food but everything mm. you eat no matter if you're like in like a hole in the wall it's gonna be amazing or do you go somewhere like London where you're like oh I can have like bao sandwich or whatever or I can have Greek food around the corner or I can have nice fish and yeah. chips because I think London has sort of stumbled into having amazing food precisely because British food generally has not been great for the last couple of centuries and I think it's because we've been so accepting of other food cultures because it's just like please feed me something that isn't beige <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. the that means you can now get really great food from all over the world here but not to like strip the fun out of it it also is like an access thing because I would say like even yeah, if you yeah expensive don't exactly yeah. I would be more inclined to go somewhere like Florence like a place where it's like they do one type of food, but anything you eat, like even like the worst of what you eat is still going to be like a cut above like anything you get in most cities. I think I would prefer to do something like that. That's where I mm. think the better food would lie. Which place that is. Also places with specific diasporas. So it's worth like mentioning something like Bradford for curries. Mm. Incredible. Doesn't Bradford like basically beat the entire like Pakistan and India in the like world curry international competition I mean I suspect that is being organised from Bradford or from <laughs> somewhere else in the well UK. this is what wow. I'm wondering like the international Indian food business is largely based on the UK I think actually that's something that bugs me about the US is you can't really get a no good curry curries, over there yeah yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and like, I remember being in Ohio and I was friends with someone whose parents owned one of only two Indian restaurants in like the entirety of Southwest Ohio. And people thought I was like a freak for eating curry. They were like, ooh, you and your exotic food, having your chicken tikka masala, which obviously isn't even Indian. It's like a f- British That's invention. British, yeah, yeah exactly. Or Glasgow. Um, Glasgow or something, sure. yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, like... I think masala is, is Glasgow and Balti is Birmingham, I think. Yeah. But anyways, I think like the US kind of sucks for certain types of cuisine, depending on where you are. But I think Ooh. Indian, it's really bad for. Also, and I don't think this is just a US problem, but I think the US version of it is part of it. Like there is this kind of pretense that Mexican is a much wider cuisine than it actually is, I think. I was in Florence and an American guy was sitting next to me at a table and randomly just started telling me why LA is the best place in the world and why Mexican food in LA is the best food in the world. And that guy was very irritating and tried to come my night out with me. Yeesh. Yeah, I know. He was like, what are you guys doing later? And we were like, we're having a romantic holiday together and you're <laughs> not in part of it. California does have good Mexican food though. I'm not actually that well-traveled. Like okay, I, well, you're every- of no <laughs> f- 
used to me. Like, seriously, like, my childhood was spent exclusively going to Chicago, which has a weird, like, Polish and Greek diaspora, so you can get really good, like, kolochki cookies. Chicago has amazing pizza. Yes. No. No, I don't like deep dish. Yeah, deep dish is rubbish. New York has amazing pizza. No, I really like deep dish. This has been fully litigated. (laughs) I mean, with me, quantity is a really big thing. (laughs) So, but it's not. It's, it's not. Like, it's just not a pizza. It's a. It's a pie. Oh god. Oh, it's great. Well, yeah, though. it's like is what's a soup? Yeah. Wait. What? what are Am you I about, about to find out? I don't know about. No, but it's like that is. horrible Twitter meme where it's like, actually, did you know that coffee is a soup? It's a bean soup. It's like the idea where you take something at its purest definition, and you try to make that <sighs> argument. Who are these people saying people these things? People who are horrible on the internet. I hate it. I hate my job. I just about <laughs> got my head around tomato as a fruit, although that is frankly nonsense. But it's, yeah, it's like the idea that if you boil something down to its purest, purest form, what is a soup? What is a pizza? I was about to say, that's a consomme. My theory about French food culture is like, Britain kind of helped big it up because like we had no access to anything better. And the French think they have this amazing food culture. And actually, it's kind of just like, oh, great, here's a really thick sauce on some meat. And it's not that exciting. I don't know. I went to Paris with my mom and I expected it was going to be trash. I was drinking like camembert with a straw, like out of a f-ing dish. And I that loved sounds... it. It was great with figs. That's like two of my favorite things. I had a great time. Last time I went to Paris, I realized that by the end of the weekend, I had had foie gras for every single meal. Oh, my God. Yeah, I had like creme brulee and profiteroles like an American asshole for every single like after breakfast, after lunch, after dinner. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, let's do a sort of quick fire round and like offend as many countries as we can. <laughs> so, how is how is Greek food in Greece? So how does it compare to kind of the international version that we get? I think it's really good. Like, and I know I would say that. and I But I'm actually most of the time shitting on Greek culture as a rule in the way that I shit on all of my heritage quote unquote but i really love greek food you can go to the peloponnese which is where i'm from it was on condé it was number one on condé nas where to go in 2019 my dad is very upset about this because of all the tourists that will now be flooding in but you can go there and have like an enormous meal with like fish and potatoes and like feta and greek salad that's all been like created that morning and it's delicious and you can like eat it there and it'll cost you five euro to have to feed like two people but i also like do accept that greek food is weird and it's very heavy and it's very fatty and you eat a lot of starch and yeah it's quite heavy for that latitude like you expect something to be yeah a little bit more like ooh, fresh from the sea whatever vegetables and it's like here's another meat and potato dish Okay, okay, talking to meat and potatoes, I really like Germanic food in winter. The weird thing is they do eat the same stuff all year round and you're like in the, the heat of mid-July and it's like, oh great, some dumpling like and some gravy. Like It feels it should be more seasonal. It feels I like do, it should be more I do seasonal. like a good stew though. Yeah, same. When it's been cooking for so long that like mm. everything's just kind of like blended same. together <laughs> yeah. into one kind of fantastic mushy thing i like when there's like no texture it's yeah. just all smooth yeah when you could put the meat through a strainer yeah basically. exactly if you guys could eat one nationality's food for the rest of your life and only one what would it be i think italian is probably the one i'd go for yeah i, I think i'm with you on that it would be close with like dim sum cantonese i would actually pick thai i think it's Ooh. much more varied than you think and you get like curries in it you get like noodles like pasta pasta in it you get fish, you get beef, you get chicken. I think it's a very diverse mm. set. And it's got like a lot of heavy things, but it's also often balanced with acid, like lemongrass and lime. And I really, yeah, there's my like actual unironic answer. I think it would be Thai. Okay. You notice none of us is picking French. So, I mean, ironically, Italian just won in a Thai. No, wait, no, it didn't, it didn't work. That was what, did you, what was your joke meant to be? A, a Thai, like a Thai, like they came 
I, I had an ending, and you just you just wrecked my ending for that. And now it was Now it's not even a good enough. What ending. that it wasn't French. It it's like none of, I was just going to none of us pick French. Screw you, Paris, and then roll the credits. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Elledge, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We're going to move on because I really am starting to feel guilty about quite how much we're putting Nick through here. Well, but Nick can just cut this all out. Yeah, but he can't cut, tell. He said if they listen to it. He this can't He can't cut. tell which bit he's cutting out until he's listened to it. He has to listen to this <laughs> shit to find out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.